Father God, from whom all blessings flow. God, we know that every good and perfect gift comes from you. God, we commit them to your service now. God, you have brought your people here to hear a word from you. God, I ask that you would transform the words of my mouth to the ears and to the hearts of people here. That your message would come bursting through. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our scripture this morning um, comes from the book of Mark, and it's the gospel text from today's uh, Revised Common Lectionary Selection. It's Mark chapter 6, verses 14 uh, through 29, and I just want to briefly remark about where we are in the gospel of Mark. This is, it's a really a unique text in the gospel of Mark, um, because it's kind of just dropped in to the middle of, of Jesus and their disciples' ministry. Jesus has, has just sent out the, the 12 disciples, and immediately following this text, we have the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, if you have never uh, read one of the Gospels before, maybe you're not uh, familiar with, with the Gospel of Mark, I want to challenge you, whether it's, it's today when you go home on, on Sunday afternoon, or, or maybe you have a day off this week, but I challenge you to sit down and read the Gospel of Mark in its entirety. You can do it in a sitting. It's 16 chapters. Just to get an idea for, for what the Gospel writing is trying to say in some total, as opposed to just picking out a story here or a story there. And I think it'll give you a taste of really the uniqueness of the story that we have today. So here we are in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. You can follow along in your Bibles that you've brought with you or on the screens. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead. And for this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said it is Elijah. And others said it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders in Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer, Immediately, she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, 
Yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Feels weird to say that after that, right? Yeah. So what do we do with this story? What do we do with this story of a beheading that's just dropped into the middle of Mark's gospel? As I said, it's unique. It comes in a kind of an interesting time in terms of context, but it's also the only story in the gospel of Mark that does not have Jesus as the central figure. We have Herod and John the Baptist and then some other players. This morning, I'd like to explore what this story reveals to us about what happens when the people of God come into contact with the word of God. What happens when the people of God come into contact with the word of God. I'd like to examine for a moment again verses 14 uh, through 16. Because as the story begins, here in the text we read, King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying John the baptizer had been raised from the dead, and for this reason these, these powers are at work in him. But others said it is Elijah, and others said it is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, who I mean, whom I beheaded has been raised. If you see there, at the beginning of 14 and then again in, uh, in 16, we have this repeating of this phrase, but when Herod heard of it. I think it's helpful for us to remember that, you know, obviously there's no social media, right? Uh, but really there's no widespread news outlet. So for Herod to have heard what is going on with this rabbi that's been wandering around in the desert, there's got to be something really significant Going on. This indicates to us that, that if, if the ruler Herod and his court are hearing about Jesus, that something very significant is happening with Jesus and his followers. Now, it's this interesting thing, you see, because it's not something they've ever seen before. And Amy, would you put that back up there? Because I want to I notice one other thing and, and point this out. As they try and figure out what is going on, they begin to use old models, old paradigms to try and define what is happening, right? Says, well, maybe it's John the baptizer. He's been raised for the dead. Uh, uh, or maybe it's Elijah. The prophets come back. Or, or maybe another one of the prophets. And I, I love that Herod finally settles it all, right? He says, no, no, no. It is John whom I beheaded because that's the most logical explanation. John's back. Thank you. That was a joke. <laughs> no, that doesn't happen, right? But, but this is what we tend to do when we're faced with new things, when we're faced with things that push back against the way that we know the world, we try and take old definitions and old paradigms and we try and force new things to fit into them. Professor, theologian, and pastor, Linda Mercadante, who I've actually quoted in here before, 
studies this growing group within our country. And it's, it's one of the largest growing groups of self-identifying people. And it's this group that, on surveys, identifies as SBNR. Does anybody know what that stands for? That was a good guess. You got all the right letters. Spiritual but not religious. Largest, one of the largest growing groups. Spiritual but not religious. So what do we do with that as a church? See, because it's this interesting thing. It's this group. They don't have a problem with a supreme being. They don't have a problem with a benevolent God. They don't have a problem with all of this being created by some intelligent being. What they have a problem with and a distrust of is us. The church. Institutionalized religion. And so what do we do with that? So we have these two options. We can begin to take old definitions, old paradigms, old ways of doing things, and try and force them into that. We can say, no, 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 this is the way that has to look. No, no, this is how you do church. Or we partner with what God is doing, because we believe that God is doing something, and we move into this new thing together. But that takes creativity. It takes a willingness to be uncomfortable, to do something new. So it's at this point where Herod finally comes to the conclusion that it must be John the Baptist back from the dead, that we do this sort of flashback thing and we are told the story of of, of what happened to John the Baptist. And uh, Amy, if you would just bring up verses 17 through 20 because I do want to look at that again. So the story goes, for Herod himself had sent men who arrested John and bound him. And why did he do that? He did that because John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. But the interesting thing is that he wanted to kill him, but he wouldn't. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous and holy. So so Herod recognizes that he is righteous and holy. He recognizes that he probably shouldn't marry his brother's wife. And, And yet, when people come into contact With the word of God, we get uncomfortable. We do funny things. And and, and I think that Herod has a a really reasonable response, frankly, or at least reasonable by our standards. You see, there's this prevailing notion that Christianity is a straitjacket. And and that's a quotation straight out of Tim Keller's Reason for God. It's it's the title of one of his ten chapters, which which addresses the common ten... um, uh, Common 10, what am I looking for? Modern critiques of Christianity. So I was in an, in an Uber this, uh, this past Friday, so two days ago, and they picked me up right out here. And uh, it, it didn't take but a, a block or two, and the driver said to me, so, um, so are you a, uh, a pastor? I said, yep. And it, it was at that point that we had a pretty good 
conversation, um, but he was very quick to let me know the life events leading up to why he was no longer a believer. That, that very quickly happened before we got to Los Olas. <laughs> and, and it's interesting, and just as an aside, you know, I think this is the only profession where that happens. As soon as you let somebody know, like if you're a doctor, doctors in here, do, as soon as you tell people you're a doctor, do they lay out their medical history? It's, as pastors, for some reason, that's like they want you to know why they haven't been to church the last three weeks. <laughs> I was glad to talk about it. But I digress. So, so we determined that I was a pastor, and then he, he said this, and I'm, this is a quote. He said, you're not one of those pastors that tells people all the things they can't do, are you? And I said, do you know what I'm preaching on this week? <laughs> you're not one of those pastors that tells people all the things they can't do, are you? We celebrated the 4th of July just a, a week and a half ago, right? The birth of our nation, land of the free, home of the brave. But what does it mean to be free? You know, somehow, in the last two and a half centuries, our country has come to the conclusion that, that freedom simply means the ability to do whatever you'd like as long as you're not hurting someone else. Somehow, we've got this definition of freedom, and in a lot of ways, we have turned freedom into this idol- idolatry, idolatrous? That's not a word. We've turned it into an idol, friends. We've turned it into this thing that we worship above all else, this ideal that we look to, freedom above all else. Is that really good? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about freedom, and he uses a number of different illustrations to, um, to make his point, but there, there is one that I think is particularly helpful for us this morning. He talks about a community of people in terms of being a band, a group of instruments that are all playing together. And in order for us to operate, all of our instruments have to be in tune. If Steve, Ronnie, and I are out of tune, you know it really quickly. But not only do our instruments all have to be in tune, but we've all got to be playing the same song. It's not that we all need to play the same thing, but we all need to be playing the same song. Total freedom does us no good. So what song are we playing? Where are we trying to go? Our founding documents protect the right for us to pursue happiness, but, but, but not the pursuit to do whatever we'd like. Somehow, our idea of freedom has gone sideways, and the idea of a God who would give us constraints is offensive, Right? I've been slowly working my way through a novel about a missionary family that moves to the Congo in the 1960s. It's called Poisonwood Bible. And it's this missionary family from Georgia. The story is, is told in this unique perspective. It, the, the, it's told in the first person, but the narrator continues to shift throughout the story. And so in this, this early chapter, the teenage daughter in the family is, is narrating from, in the first person, and she's, she's telling about... Uh, her father's introduction, her father who is the pastor, his introduction into this tribe where they will be ministering. And I want you to hear what she says. 
She says, the crowd cheered as he spoke, her father, though they were not understanding exactly what he was saying. But I felt a growing knot in my stomach. He was getting that look he gets. Oh boy. Like here comes Moses tromping down off Mount Sinai with 10 fresh ways to wreck your life. But isn't that how we sort of see the Ten Commandments, right? Or God's law. It's simply a straitjacket. Ways that are going to come crashing down on the party. Here, there is this interesting observation. I, I think we tend to try and move away from the Old Testament as we are Easter people, right? We celebrate what God has done through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. So what do we need with the Ten Commandments, right? I want you to go home and look at the Ten Commandments. They're in Exodus chapter 20. The first four of those Ten Commandments are love God, no idols, don't take the Lord's name in vain, and keep the Sabbath holy. All four of those have to do with loving God. If we're loving God, then we're doing the first four commandments. And the next six all have to do with how we relate to one another. So if we follow Jesus, if we love God, if we love neighbor, we're keeping the Ten Commandments. Jesus doesn't throw it away. He says he's the fulfillment of the law. So what is an encounter with God's law, with God's word, really like? Now for Herod, it's not exactly what we might think at first. I want to pull up verse 20 one more time. If you look here at the bottom of verse 20, it says, When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. What is your reaction when you encounter the word of God? How do you hear it? Are you intrigued? Are you dismissive? Are you perplexed? Is it comforting? Is it uncomfortable? Do you engage it with a spirit of humility or with defensiveness? Do you find yourself, like me, sometimes explaining away why the gospel is not actually calling you to fully engage in ministries of compassion and service? As we look at the story of John the Baptist and Herod, it is an interesting foreshadowing of what will happen to Jesus before Pilate. Just like John, Jesus is met with a certain amount of intrigue. Pilate wants to know, who is this person? And as Pilate navigates a political tightrope between the Jewish priesthood and the Roman government, we have this picture of ruling elite juxtaposed over and against someone of a lower social strata. And both of them do their best to navigate this, right? Pilate tries to get out of it, to wash his hands and be done, and yet is drawn back in. Herod has been doing his best to navigate this, but his hand is finally forced 
In our story today, there's a party going on while there's a holy and righteous man sitting in prison. What do we do with that? Because what is happening here in Mark's gospel happens again today, over and over again. People in power with spheres of influence and the ability to work out the gospel shy away again and again. And friends, where we see the gospel spreading is where we have seen it always spread, and that is among the poor, among the marginalized, among the oppressed. Pew Research recently came out with a study that shows by 2060, more than 50% of the world's Christianity will be located on the continent of Africa. Over the last more than century, Christianity is growing the fastest. Excuse me, the top, of the top 10 countries where Christianity is growing the fastest, seven of them are located in Africa. The gospel spreads among the poor, among the oppressed, among the marginalized. The gospel is going to move whether we move it or not. And so my question is, will we join in what God is doing? Will we ask the hard questions? What happens when the word of God comes into contact with the people of God? In 2017, Tom Hanks stars in a movie called The Post, and it recounts the Washington Post's dilemma over whether or not to to publish sensitive documents that indicated that the U.S. government had not been forthcoming about what was happening in Vietnam. They became famously known as the Pentagon Papers. And And I want you to hear, first and foremost, that the The point is not whether you agree or disagree with the Post's actions, but I want you to hear this conversation between two friends about what the best course of action was. It happens between Daniel Ellsberg and Ben Bagdicki. And Daniel, excuse me, Daniel Ellsberg was a gentleman who had uh, come into possession of these sensitive documents that exposed that, that the United States had, had, had been less than forthcoming with the American people about what was going on in Vietnam. And Ben Bagdikian is working for the Washington Post, and they're in this heated back and forth at this pivotal moment in the movie over what to do. Should these documents be published or not? And in this moment, Daniel Ellsberg looks at Ben Bagdikian and he says, wouldn't you be willing to go to prison to stop a war? And I love the honesty and the vulnerability of Ben Bagdikian's response. He says, theoretically, sure. (laughs) Friends, I'm afraid that for many of us in the American church, this is how we engage the gospel. This is how we engage 
the prompting to reach out to the oppressed, to the marginalized, to loving our neighbor. We say we're willing to do that. Theoretically, sure. But what about when it means using our cultural capital? What about when it means using our spheres of influence? What about when it means taking a risk? Friends, are we going to be Christians that answer the call theoretically sure, or will we simply say yes? Friends, let us move into this new day being a people of God that interact with the word of God by saying yes. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are a God that created us in your image. You created us to be people who reach out people that care for the oppressed and the marginalized, you call us to be sacrificial people because, God, it's the example that you set for us as your son went to the cross for a people undeserving. God, help us to live in to your promises. God, help us to know with surety that we are your people so that we can be people who answer yes to your call. Gracious God, we ask all these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Amen.